0: Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. On a certain evening or two in late June, an astronomical event occurs that brews excitement all over the Northern Hemisphere. That night, when the northern half of the Earth's tilt towards the Sun is at its maximum, folks stream into the hills singing, bearing foliage chosen for its symbolism and lighting bonfires in honor of the sun, a glowing ball visible for a longer period on that day than any other day in the solar year. In this episode, I'll explore and share music from some of the better and lesser-known celebrations of the Midsummer Solstice in Europe, from the Neolithic Age through the Middle Ages to the present. In the process, I'll invoke, and hopefully even answer, some of the perennial questions that arise along with this mysterious holiday. Like, what is a maypole. Why are all of those Russians bathing together? And how can I find buried treasure when all I'm wearing is this garland of mugwort? And what's all this about human sacrifice? Before I begin the episode, I want to say thank you to all the people who filled out the listener survey I mentioned in the last episode. And I have to say, either the people who filled out the survey were an unusually kind sample, or my listeners are just generally amazing people. I'm going to assume the latter. Seriously though, I was floored by the depth and the generosity of people's comments, I'm so grateful for your honest feedback, and I'm really pleased to be conversing with such an interesting and interested group of people. Some folks told me that the podcast means a lot to them personally. One person said that it's part of a family tradition for them, and more than one said that it got them through a difficult time in their life. That means a lot to me to hear, since this podcast is my very favorite thing to do, and I love to know that me making it makes other people happy too. I heard from you all that you enjoyed the Fair Folk Footnotes and Almanac segments from the first season. So I'll be bringing those back here and there, beginning with this episode, which is entirely dedicated to calendar-like subject matter. You also told me that the most inspiring part of the podcast is information about pagan or pre-Christian rituals, which is hilarious because I was pretty sure that was just something I liked, and that you were just tolerating for my sake. So I'll keep delivering the weird pagan goods, and you keep being you. Thank you again. we may as well begin our Midsummer Nights episode in Sweden, whose solstice festivities are so enthusiastically undertaken that they overshadow those of their national day, which occurs rather quietly two weeks earlier. On June 24th or thereabouts, Swedes will don folk costumes and host or attend the biggest picnic of the year in their favorite outdoor location. In preparation, they will take a large wooden pole, covered entirely in lush greenery, and decorate it with triangles and wreaths. The temporary monument is called a maypole, and once it is decorated and raised up, Swedes will dance around it in circles, singing seasonal songs like Smögadorna, a funny little song about frogs, which is accompanied by a hopping dance around the pole. It's hard to say what the early origins of the maypole are, but it does seem continuous with a very long tradition of venerating trees in sacred groves in Sweden and in other areas of Europe, and it echoes the shape of the mythological world tree, which is an element in many pre-Christian cultures the world over. These days, maypoles are also widely supposed to be a phallic symbol, in keeping with the heightened productivity of the natural world in that season in which they are raised. People will also wear flower wreaths on their head at midsummer festivities in Sweden, and these crowns are symbolic of fertility, health, and strength in many pagan traditions, just like those you may have seen on statues from ancient Rome and Greece. These symbolic accessories, the maypole and the flower crown, situate this festival firmly in the realm of celebrating the joyful, cooperative perpetuation of life on earth at the height of summer. Another traditional element of the Swedish Midsummer worth noting is the nationwide ritual of drinking snaps, often with a tasty side of pickled herring. The snaps drink is usually an aquavit, a clear unsweetened herbal liquor which is conventionally drunk from a long-stemmed shot glass while making eye contact with the others around you and saying skull or shouting it, depending on how many aquavites you have already had that afternoon. As you can imagine, the addition of alcohol, to an occasion already known for its headiness, is only likely to heighten the role of fertility in the day's proceedings. If you haven't heard a complete song dedicated just to the act of taking shots, here it is in a recording as brief and as bracing as the SNAP's ritual itself. The ritual of toasting in Scandinavian tradition, just like the maypole and the flower crown, also extends back into pre-Christian days, only at that time the vessel would have been a cow or goat horn, and the drink inside it would probably have been mead or beer. Looking at all these ancient Swedish Midsummer traditions, it's easy to think that Swedish Midsummer is a pagan holiday, the summer complement to the winter solstice, which Scandinavians are famous for enjoying since forever. Some neo-pagans even call the solstice letha, using an Old Norse word for June or July. And although the Midsummer festival contains many pagan elements, such as dancing, a maypole, decorative greenery, and wreaths, there is, it seems, no actual evidence aside from speculation and wishful thinking, that Scandinavians or Germanic pagans in general actually celebrated the summer solstice. The northern European version of this high summer festival that we now call Midsummer seems to have originated in the early Middle Ages, a Christian celebration of the birth of John the Baptist, the man who was famous for baptizing, or ritually bathing, Jesus and his followers by immersing them completely in the River Jordan. That may at first seem odd, Since, as many people know, Christianity in the Middle Ages had a serious habit of appropriating pre existing pagan holidays for its own ends. But in this case, a medieval Christian origin for the holiday makes sense. First off, in very northern latitudes, there are several days and nights of continuous sunlight. So, in many areas of Scandinavia, there'd be no obvious difference between the solstice and the week before or after it. Furthermore, the solstice marks the death of the sun, the decline of its influence for the rest of the year. If the winter solstice is celebrated because it marks the sun's return to an area where access to food and warmth is life or death, the decline of the sun just might not warrant a joyful celebration. Secondly, and I think most interestingly, pre Christian Germanic peoples thought about time a lot differently than we do now. Time was not seen as independent from the things that happened as we see it now. Time was what happened, the events themselves. If a thing didn't happen, then it wasn't a time. There's even a clue of this older meaning of time in the word itself. Time has the same base as the word tide, as in the movements of the ocean. For example, if for some reason the ocean did not surge or retreat one day as we expected, we would say there had not been a tide. Likewise, if the summer solstice was not discernible, or did not improve or affect people's lives in any major way, then it probably wouldn't have been celebrated as a major holiday. And in fact, that word "litha." used by some neo-pagans to describe the festival now, is the key to its undoing as far as the solar calendar goes. Letha refers to the months of June or July, and it means literally pleasant or navigable, in reference to conditions for sailing. And that's because a great many people in early Scandinavia would have taken advantage of the copious daylight available in June or July to go travelling by boat southward in order to trade or to raid and augment their resources. In any case, there's no written evidence of summer solstice customs occurring in Scandinavia or in Germany until the Middle Ages, and these were clearly associated with Christianity, compared to the copious evidence for winter solstice customs before this time. So where did these obviously pagan summer solstice fertility rituals come from then? Jacob Grimm, of Grimm Brothers fame, noted that midsummer bonfires, the most common midsummer custom, in the north of Germany had traditionally happened at Easter, or in other words, around the spring equinox, midway between winter and the summer solstice, which is possibly when other northern European cultures celebrated the return of the sun as well. Here is a Swedish folk song describing the feeling of delight that comes when you're outside in the beauty of nature in summer. The song is traditionally sung at graduation in late June. This is Frifot with Idena Ljowa Sumertid.
1: Sörons lilja täck och skön uti din bord förbli.
0: Christian Festival of St. John the Baptist, which occurs in most places on June 24th, a few days after the solstice, has been combined with pre-Christian customs over time to create what we now call Midsummer. As many people will know, the Christian Church transposed the celebrations of Jesus' birth onto pre-existing pagan winter solstice customs. They also placed John the Baptist's birth, six months earlier, on the summer solstice, in order to reinforce the idea that the spiritual leader John the Baptist was a precursor to the Christ, whose influence, like that of the sun, was supposed to wane, and be replaced by that of Jesus, who was explicitly likened to the sun, and was reborn in December every year. Therefore they replaced the sun god, S-U-N, that was worshipped by prehistoric observers of the solstice, with a sun god, S-O-N. Very clever marketing. travel to Ireland, an island known for the age and variety of its folklore traditions. The central event in Irish Midsummer was a bonfire on St. John's Eve, which served the twin purposes of spiritually cleansing and ensuring health and fertility in the coming year. People would jump over the flames or throw sacred or magical objects in it that they needed to dispose of carefully. Because milk cows were so important to survival, People tried to position the fires so that the magical smoke would blow over their cows, or walk their cows through the smoke as it drifted on the wind. Sticks were bundled together into torches and carried through farmers' fields in procession. The burning bundles were often called John's Wisp, but in County Limerick, this tradition is attributed to an earlier motivation than veneration of a saint. A mythological figure named Anya is said to have lived in a place called Krakanya. It said this figure who is associated with the sun and with light and was possibly a goddess, died on Midsummer's Night. All the good people, or fairies, came streaming out of their raths and leos, or fairy rings, in every corner of Ireland, carrying torches in her honour. I think I prefer this explanation of events. Oro Mabajin is an Irish folk song, an ode to the singer's curac, a traditional Irish wood frame and animal skin boat. It goes like this. Oro, my little boat, swimming in the harbor. Oro, my little curac. I'll host the sail and go to the west, and I won't be back until St. John's Eve.
2: (laughs) CROC CAMA SHOL TAGOS CAMI O Roma Karakino Iskahi hefelo ni chukame nir O Roma Vajin
3: O Roma Karakino O Roma Vajin Taragi
4: taragi taragi
2: gaboon. (laughs) Isna frahi ma wajin, isna ver angun. Ho,
3: Roma
4: karakino.
2: Isna gaisli adaring t'galadars gabun. Ho, Roma vajin. Ho, Roma
3: karakino.
2: Taragi, gaboon, oh, my tra,
3: Oh, Romavajin,
2: tana gita, tana gita, Oh, Oro oh, oh, ma
4: kareki
2: no Iskahi he hefe lo ni chakame nir Oro ma vajin
3: Oro ma kareki no
0: Of fire for ritual purification is common to virtually all midsummer traditions in Europe. In fact, the word bonfire itself derives from bone fire, and we know this was a common part of the St. John's Night festivities in the British Isles, because a monk from Lillishall Abbey in England reported In the worship of St. John, men waken at even and in three manner of fires. One is clean bones, and no wood, and is called a bonfire. Another is of clean wood and no bones. And is called a wake fire, for men sitteth by and wake by it. The third is made of bones and wood, and this is Saint John's Fire. Cornwall is no exception to the bonfire enthusiasm found elsewhere. They are known for their massive bonfires and unruly torch bearing, and both traditions continue to this day, in a ten-day festival called Tanzas Gollowan. This is Tanzas Gallowan by Cornish Band, Dalla. This is Fair Folk Footnotes, where I dig into the archives and unearth the old-timey origins of things in popular culture. If you're a fan of horror movies or folk music from the 70s, or you're just into watching cult classics, you've probably seen the 1973 film Wicker Man. If you haven't, I'll give you a quick summary. A police officer goes to investigate the disappearance of a child on a Scottish island populated by an insular pagan community. He comes to believe she is being held as a prisoner to be ritually sacrificed on Midsummer's Eve to increase the island's failing apple harvest. In fact, when he arrives at the ceremonial site, he is bundled into an opening in a giant effigy of a man made of wicker and burned alive himself. This film builds on an old idea that ancient Celtic societies sacrificed humans at Midsummer in large effigies made of wicker. But is this belief accurate? Julius Caesar was the first to say that the Gauls of the first century BC in France used this form of sacrifice, but can we really give him the final word? Some folklorists say that these accusations are more likely cross-cultural slander than a reliable ethnographic report. There are medieval accounts of wicker effigy burning in the Netherlands and France, places where Celtic tribes lived in the Iron Age, but there is no reason to think that this effigy contained humans. To be fair, we do have some evidence of ritual murder in England and Ireland, though. One example is bodies found in bogs, with injuries corresponding to three different gods, like the one called Lindoman, found in northwest England. Another example is bodies found in the foundations of buildings in Ireland, from the Bronze and Iron Ages and later. However, if or when Celts were sacrificing humans, it's very unlikely that they would have placed their victim inside a large, wicker effigy since a structure made of such flimsy materials probably couldn't support the weight of a human, especially not while on fire itself. Most likely, the Romans had something to gain from presenting cultures other than their own as barbaric, and combined descriptions of the burning of effigies on the continent with descriptions of sacrifice from the British Isles, to create the perfect climax for a 1970s folk horror film. At the film's grisly end, the revelers hold hands and dance in a circle, and sang this classic Middle English tune about the beginning of summer: Summer is a comin' in. Here it is performed by Trouvert medieval minstrels. From wicker effigies to flower crowns and maypoles covered in greenery, the importance of plant life to celebrations of midsummer can't be overstated. In Bulgaria, John the Baptist is also known as Ivan Biliober, Ivan the herb-gatherer, because herbs gathered before sunrise on this day are supposed to be supernaturally powerful. Bulgarian folklore says that on midnight, on Midsummer's Eve, stars come down from the sky and imbue flowers and herbs with magical potency. Women go out at dawn to search for herbs, singing traditional songs like this one, Ivan Narada, performed here by Donka Paneva and Mitka Petkova from Malamir Village, Yambol District, Bulgaria. <speaking in Spanish>
5: А гора зелена, една са е врнеле, като изпаде врвеше, като изпаде врвеше различни белки биреше, биреше и наричаше умайма бяле, умайме. Първата белка заява, втората белка. За...
0: In Latvia, Midsummer is known as Jani, Latvian for John, and celebrations there stand out for their stunning aesthetic quality, both visually and musically. Latvians dress up in traditional costume. Men wear wreaths of oak leaves on their heads, and women wreaths of flowers, grasses, and herbs. They tend bonfires all night, preferably on hills. They jump over the bonfires and swim naked in bodies of water. They drink beer to bless the coming year's barley yield and eat cheese, to increase the production of milk. Latvia has an extremely strong national singing culture, which was a powerful part of their gaining independence from the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, and draws from deep cultural traditions. An impressive number of songs celebrating Jani survived the ages, many of them with the refrain Ligwa, which means to sway. This is the Latvian band Skandiniaki, singing the Jani song Li guayati, li guayati,
5: I'm out of
0: Livonian is a Finnic language from Latvia and Estonia, which is currently nearly extinct. While there are some speakers living who learned the language from their parents, and some who study or have studied the language at university, it is unclear if there are any speakers who currently use the language in everyday life. One way Livonian is being kept alive is through its presence in songs, like the next one, a midsummer song from an album of 35 Livonian songs recorded in 1999 by the Latvian band Stalti Family. Aksai on
3: your Liga, Liga, boy, lap, she lived, 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 lived,
0: Ivan Kupala is the name of the holiday celebrated across countries that share Slavic heritage, including Russia, Poland, Ukraine, and Belarus. Kupala Night is a deeply symbolic occasion that incorporates the powerful fusion of opposites in its many ritual elements, male and female, fire and water, light and darkness, natural and supernatural, all come together in the all-night celebration on July 6th, John the Baptist's birthday in the Orthodox calendar. It may be my favorite of all the regional midsummer festivals in Europe, partly because of a certain folk belief about a magical plant, which really captures my imagination, and which I will share with you in a few moments. The earliest references to Ivan Cupola date from the 11th century, though because of its ritual and folkloric elements, the customs associated with this day and the night before are locally believed to be much older. The name Ivan is yet another version of John, and Cupola means bathing, which is a reference to his biblical role as a baptizer, but it also refers to a ritual bathing tradition already existing in Russia when this saint's day arrived on the scene. Water and fire are said to make friends on this night. Revelers light bonfires on the banks of rivers on cupola eve, and leap over them to cleanse their spirits, and thus protect them from the witches, mermaids, werewolves, and other evil spirits that are out and about that night, preying on tainted souls. People stay awake the whole night on watch for supernatural beings, who are more active on cupola night. Trees are also known to move from place to place this night, and even to speak to one another. In some regions, people would lace a wheel with dried grass, set it on fire, and roll it down a hill, symbolizing the decline of the sun. In areas of Russia, a stick with a sun-shaped circle on the end is used to stoke the fire, and some Belarusians would put a wheel on the top of a high pillar in the center of the bonfire to burn above the whole pyre. Unmarried girls weave crowns of flowers and herbs to wear, and in the evening they float them out onto bodies of water, topped with a lit candle, to bring them luck and love, another combination of fire and water in this festival. A boy might try to catch a particular wreath to demonstrate his affection for a particular girl, but don't worry, she doesn't have to choose him. This is the Dmitry Pokrovsky ensemble singing a love song called Perushka, which would be sung in a cheerful and noisy procession through the streets of rural Russia. The song describes a lover named Ivan, who the singer adores for his exuberant hairiness. I love him, Perushka says, for his dear head is curly and his beard is frizzy "'and curls twine over his face.' At the end of the night, just before sunrise, after staying up all night, people would strip naked and wash themselves in running water or morning dew, which was considered to have healing powers on this day. There's a somewhat mysterious song sung in Ukraine at Kupola that describes the death of a young woman named Maria. The song likely refers to the mythical union of two characters associated with this holiday Ivan and Maria, or Marina. The two young people fall in love and when they discovered they are in fact siblings, the young woman drowns herself. In this song, all the young women are gathering flowers for Ivan Cupola, but they can't find Maria. Then they go fishing, and they still cannot find Maria. Then they go wading, and the song says, All the girls were floating, but young Marina had drowned. This is Zelia, with Cupola na Ivana. In Slavic and Baltic regions, a strange and wonderful old story is told every year at Midsummer, though how old, nobody can say. The tale varies by region and by teller, but the main elements remain the same. A young person or two is venturing into the deepest parts of the woods on Midsummer's Eve, just before midnight, and looking for a botanical oddity, a freak of science, the mythical flowering fern. You'd think that if you were looking for a very specific plant in the dark forests of Poland or Belarus, you might want to wait a few hours for the sun to rise on what is famously the longest day of the year. But if you did so, you would find yourself waiting another year, since this magical fern only blooms at midnight on Midsummer's Eve. But don't worry. If you are close enough to see the fern, you will notice that at exactly 12 a.m., it begins to glow like the light of some fierce star. Or maybe the eye of some demon. You can't miss it. You might want to be careful about how you approach the flower once you see it, though. In fact, they say you should probably go naked and drape yourself with mugwort garlands, just to be safe. And bring a clean white linen cloth with you, so you can gently shake the flower onto it once it blooms, or it might dissipate into the air as soon as it falls. If you do catch it in your hand, be sure to never let it go, because then you will never see it again. In fact, if you do decide to touch it, You might want to do as some others have done and cut an opening into your skin to store it in, just until you get home. In no time at all, you'll feel the effects taking hold. You'll notice that you understand the speech of animals and birds. Or maybe you suddenly know where all the treasure in the country is buried. In fact, now that you think about it, you know everything. You wander out of the trees some hours later, in a happy daze. You've heard that this morning the sun plays in the sky at dawn. And through eyes damp with wonder, you watch it shimmer over the horizon in tandem with the sway in your step, and you look ahead to a year that will surely be filled with bounty and with joy.
5: Sligua, sligua. Yes, sligua, sligua. Yes, sligua, sligua. Tell me, is it time? Tell me, is it out? Is it chaos? Sligua, sligua. Tell me, is it time? Tell Cie, cie, nie, ligua, ligua. Niebu si saim nie, cie janiu asy ga jucel. Ligua, ligua. Niebu si Sri sala vite. Sri Gua, Sri Gua,
0: that's all for this episode of Fair Folk. If you enjoy the show, please like our page on Facebook or leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Fair Folk is a radio show and podcast exploring folk culture and music from around the world. The show is hosted by Smithers Community Radio, CICK 93.9 FM, smithersradio.com, and can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. Have a wonderful summer solstice.